Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school, you're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Food 360 with Mark Murphy is a production of iHeartRadio. So I said, look, I'll take the space for the restaurant, but you have to give me that pizzeria. Pizza is so simple to make, which means it's so easy to screw up. Like a sfinchone, right? Oh my God, I'm so happy you said that. (laughs) Yes! Welcome to Food 360, the podcast that serves up some serious food for thought. I'm your host, Mark Murphy. Some of you may know me as a chef and a New York restaurateur. Today, we're going to be discussing America's favorite food, and that's pizza. At the start of the show, you heard the voices of Nancy Silverton and Scott Wiener. Nancy, a world-renowned chef that loves pizza, and Scott, whose obsession for it turned into a full-fledged career. I sat down first with Scott, who owns Scott's Pizza Tours, a guided bus and walking tour that visits some of New York's best pizzerias. He also writes a pizza column and judges competitions. And he's in the Guinness Book of World Records. We're going to talk about that a little later on. Scott, thank you so much for being here today. I wanted to talk to you about pizza, obviously, because you're the pizza man, right? Uh, Yeah, I guess so, yeah. How'd you get into pizza? Probably the way most people who are involved with pizza get into it. Like, I love eating pizza. That's pretty much it. But I love eating pizza so much that the nuances and differences among styles started to really come out to me as I was like it would explore pizzerias beyond my hometown. Right. But most people that just get really into pizza and want nuance and all those fancy things, they don't make it a career. How did you turn this into your career? Well, because I think most people don't see nuance as understanding the difference of bake temperature and bake time and air movement of an oven. And that's the stuff that made it my career is when I started noticing that there were differences and that those differences had historic and scientific reasons. So I would take my friends to pizzerias and explain to them the reasons for the differences. And then that turned into more people wanting to do that and have that experience. And like when I started calling it a tour and selling tickets and having a website, that's when I realized that I probably didn't need to get a real job. And this is this is it. How long have you been doing this? It'll be 11 years at the end of this month. That is pretty amazing. And I'm sure there's a lot of people kicking themselves in the butt right now going, why didn't I think of that? Well, I, I meet a lot of people on my 
tours who say, oh, you know, I thought about doing this 20 years ago. Yeah. And I said, I kind of wish you would have done it because I would love to go on it. Yeah, but then you'd have to have some other boring job or something like that, like a know. pizza historian. I mean, that's probably interesting, <laughs> but just sitting there reading books about it, at least you're out there eating it. But I do that too. When you walk into a pizza store, when do you know it's going to be good? Is it the smell? Is it the look of the place? What, what's going to tell you it's going to be a good pie? There are a few things that happen right upon walking in. Overwhelming smell of oregano usually tells me the style of pizza it's going to be. Too much oregano to me means, okay, they're not buying great tomatoes. They're really trying to doctor them up. This is a cooked sauce, which means it's probably a buy-the-slice pizza. It's going to be a dark, pasty sauce, which always kind of turns me off personally. Right. So that's number one. You want the tomato to be bright and fresh. I want it to be a good tomato. Right. You know, if you see heat lamps over a pizza, that's, yeah, that's terrible. If I see 30, 40 pizzas sitting out and like five people in the place, that's a bad sign. Just stay away. Don't, don't waste the calories on that. Well, I limit the slices that I eat. I limit it to 15 per week. 15 per week. Yeah. So I know if I'm going to use one of those slices, I'm not going to use it on something that looks like it's totally undercooked. It's like a piece of cardboard. No, you're not going to go for that. No, that's not what it's about because pizza is so simple to make. Not to say that it's easy, but it's simple, which means it's so easy to screw up. So with food, the easier it gets to make a dish, the more bad stuff there will be. But, you know. What's the worst mistake somebody can do making a pizza? Oh, there's so many. (laughs) Lately, I've been noticing too much flour while stretching out a dough and forgetting to whisk away extra flour so that you get this, like, burnt flour on the undercarriage that gets yellow and gets tart on your tongue Mm. and it's grainy. Texturally, it's awful, and it just tastes terrible. Like, easiest thing you could fix. Do you remember Two Boots? I think they're yeah, are they still around. They With put the cornmeal, cornmeal on the bottom, right? Yeah. I remember when they opened in East Village. That's when I lived there. Oh, that yeah. That was when they the had 80s. the first place, right? After the first 87 place. on Avenue A. It's so amazing. I mean, I didn't grow up in this country, but I, I've been here probably for about 25 years. So I always had friends that they were true New Yorkers and born here. They would literally walk an extra 10 or 15 blocks. Like, no, 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 no. We're going to that place. And I was like, Really? It's like 1 o'clock in the morning. i got to walk another 15 blocks. No, no, they'd make a better slice over here. And sure enough, when you got there, you're like, okay, but it was 1 o'clock in the morning. I was probably going to be okay with that one because we've been at the bar for a long time. But yeah, oh yeah. what is the, the history behind the dollar slice? Isn't that something that just came around recently? Or- totally. I mean, that's why New York is so great that you can get a slice of pizza for a buck. And, and it's good. <laughs> well, it, it's good. It's it's Sometimes it's good enough. Again, it depends on your level of sobriety at the moment. So wait, you're saying you always have to be drunk when you have a a dollar (laughs) slice? I'm saying that there is a right time of the day for every slice of pizza in which it can be the perfect antidote at any moment. But that 2 a.m. slice is not going to be a good 8 p.m. slice. So the dollar slice, which by the way, just to clarify for your listeners here, we're not talking about just a price. Because we had dollar slices that were, you know, normal pizza was for a buck in the late 80s. We're talking about the genre of the dollar slice, which is popping out so fast, low quality cheese, pizza makers who are not really pizza makers. But since they're only a dollar, they're able to sell so many of them that they're able to keep the price down, at least for now until their rents go up. But historically, we're talking about going back to about the recession, 2008, when a lot of these places started to open. And now there are about 80 or 90 dollar slice places around New York City. Really? Yeah. How do they pay their rent? It's a lot. Well, by guaranteeing volume. Since it was over 10 years ago, I truly believe that we will see fewer and fewer of those places. As you said, as the rents go up, as those 10-year leases run out. 
There's no way you can keep that price point. It's going to be tough for them. But another question about your tour. So how long is your tour and how many spots do you hit when you're out on your tour? We do a couple different tours. So we do a public walking tour where we take 16 people out and it's about two and a half to three hours. We hit three pizzerias, each one of a different style and a different time period of pizza evolution. That's like a neighborhood specific tour. But then we do a once a week bus tour just on Sunday, and that's four and a half hours. And four many, pizzerias. How many? Oh, four pizzerias. Yeah. We start every one of them at Lombardi's on Spring Street. Okay. So Lombardi's has this old coal fired oven. Before Neapolitans came to New York and brought that food here, wood fired. Coal was just cheaper here than wood. But it also made a culinary decision because coal is much drier. It takes longer to bake that pizza. The ovens are built in a different way than a wood fired oven. And so the food is instantly changed. So where was the pizza invented then? We cannot pinpoint a who or a when, but we know it's happening around the late 17th, early 18th century in Southern Italy, around Naples. Somewhere. Okay. Pizza's transformed. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's a million different types of pizza. I was just in Morocco. We pulled over and had Berber pizza. Okay. (gasps) I thought the tour guide was joking, right? (laughs) But no, it's this pizza that actually is more like a calzone, but flat. And it's got all this chopped up meat. It was a chicken one. There was a lamb one. And there was a vegetarian one with all of those Moroccan spices in there. It was phenomenal. But I got a question. They called it a pizza, or is it something that's recently been called a pizza that really has a cultural name? On the menu, it said pizza. It had a different name. I am not. I don't remember, but everybody in the restaurant, they were calling it a pizza. There are all these foods that we now call, you know, oh, it's the Turkish pizza. Oh, it's a Mexican pizza. Right. But really, it's a flatbread history. And the way we see it is as a pizza because it's round. You can cut it into triangles. Right. And I, I just love to say the Turkish one. The lachmajun. Lachmajun. Oh, one of my favorites. So good. It is so good. It's one of my favorite, favorite foods. But now in America, there's obviously New York-style pizza. There's Chicago pizza. There's this thing called Detroit pizza. So Detroit-style pizza is fascinating because it's essentially a Sicilian pizza. Right. So it's a dough that like is sfin- allowed like to- Like a sfincione, right? Exactly. Oh my God, I'm so happy you said that. <laughs> yes. It's like sfincione, which is like this thing that people like think that Sicilian pizza exists in Sicily, which right. became known as a pizza only in America. Yeah, but what Sicilian pizza is in America is not at all what sfincione is. They're like two no. totally different products. No, but like you just rattled off all these different styles. And the way that I would define each of those styles is based on the crust. Mm-hmm. I don't care what you put on a deep dish pizza in Chicago. It's still a deep dish pizza. So when I say Sicilian pizza, we're talking about what it has in common with sfincione, which is that it's essentially a focaccia. So the dough is allowed to proof when it's in its pan. Mm-hmm. Unlike New York style where the dough is stretched and then not allowed to proof after the stretch. Instead, it's topped and baked. So Sicilian is stretched, proofed, Left to topped, yeah, baked. You, you got to let it raise, exactly. rise up. Exactly. And then the thing that Sicilian has to do with Detroit is, Detroit is a Sicilian pizza, but baked in a much higher pan. That edge of the pan allows the cheese to be stacked all the way to the edge of the pan, oh. which so is you, where it burns along so the So you've sides. got no borders. I mean, exactly. you got no edge to pick up. Yeah, like, you know, on a Sicilian pizza right. in New York, you can hold the edge. Yeah, that's why I always get the corner. Oh, you get the corner? Okay, so of course I get the corner. I mean, I'm always like, who doesn't want the corner? They're like, oh, well, there's less stuff. I'm like, no, but the corner's like no, the crispy, but, delicious part. I'm glad I have friends who like the edge or like the middle. You know, because then I get the corner. You must go to Chicago to have the deep dish, right? Yeah, sure. Do you like the deep dish? I do, I do. It is the heaviest thing. I mean, I remember we had it once. We were sitting on the floor of some hotel because we had to order it in. And it was just like, it was the densest stuff in the world. I don't know how people eat a whole one, I'll tell you that. I don't know how much you got through, but usually I get through a slice. 
and then I want another one, yeah. and two bites in, I realize this my is, mistake. This is a mistake. Which kind of sucks, because you kind of want to try different ones. Yeah, and I think it's just a difference between the way people eat in right. Chicago and in New York, right. which is why, you know, like, every city's got its own thing, and New York is really a town of small bites and of eating constantly, and Chicago is a big restaurant, sit down, we're going to make this an event Well, it's town. because they can't go outside, it's so damn cold. Exactly. In the wintertime, you get into a place and take your coat off, there's no way in hell you're going outside. Which is why it makes sense that that's the pizza that sort of became a development in Chicago. Totally. Totally. I mean, people ask me my favorite pizza. I mean, Neapolitan pizza. I've been to Naples many times. Gino Sorbillo is a, is a good friend. He makes that fried calzone. It's so good. I got to make that with him. It was oh, hilarious. So good. And the line down the street. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I think they're making somewhere like thirteen or 1,400 pizzas a day. You saw the whole, all the different rooms he has in oh, the yeah. back. This is where the stuff comes in. This is where the dough is made. And then he has that special room downstairs. Oh, I didn't go downstairs. Oh, so what it is is, I guess he's had problems with some of the organized crime and whatnot. And he's well protected, so he feeds all the cops downstairs and the soccer team. That's so cool. You got to go down there next time. I got to join a soccer team. You got to join a soccer team or become a carabinieri. Yeah. They both sound like the hardest things in the world. (laughs) Yeah, being either one of those things is probably difficult. You hold a record in the Guinness Book of World Records. That's pretty impressive. And it's for your pizza box collection. First of all, why? Are you a hoarder? sound like What's going on? Uh, Where do you put these things? So- I'm not a hoarder, but thank you. <laughs> I, I you have How many do you have now? I have 1,476. Okay. That's a lot of pizza boxes. I keep them in my closet. Okay. In my apartment. 300 of them are in my parents' house. I'll tell you that. Okay. So that's good. It's 300 that I don't need as much as the others. Are they insured? They are insured. I love it. See? Absolutely. Very few people ask me that. What's it valued at? $100,000. Wow. You see? Well, because, listen, a pizza box is designed to be thrown in the garbage. Its scarcity becomes its value, right? So I've got pizza boxes that are 30 years old, and nobody has them because they're, by definition, in the garbage. Do you have foreign pizza boxes as well? I think I've got about 92 countries. 92 countries? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad we got through that. A couple more questions here. First of all, (laughs) what's your favorite pizza? Margarita pizza. Just straight Mm, up. Yeah. Boring. No, what, what do you mean boring? It's like got everything you want in a pizza right there. For some reason, I just love the salty. Oh, totally. But I just feel like a well-baked pizza margarita where the cheese has just only slightly puddled, finished with mm. an olive oil that's like bright and smooth and almost buttery. There's nothing like that. Oh, that was sexy. I, whew, I'm glad you felt the same. I just got, just got, a, little, just got a little warm in here. <laughs> All right, it's that time. I like to play a little game at the end. I'm going to ask you a question. You give me the first word that pops in your head. Cheese or pepperoni? Cheese. Thick or thin crust? Thin. Team pineapple or no? Yeah, pineapple. Why not? Piece or a slice? Oh, a slice. Okay. East Coast, come on. All right, a pizza or a pie? A pie. A folder or a fork and knife? I'm actually a semi-folder. You have to have your favorite topping? Oh, sausage. Crumbled? The chunks out of the casing. Chunks. Yeah. Black pepper. Yeah. Garlic. Oh. Fennel seeds. Oh, baby. Yeah, put it on raw. Okay, here we go. Whew, all right, that's it. We got to go, man. <laughs> I got to go get a pizza. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we'll be right back after a quick break. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Welcome back to Food360. I want to talk to someone who really knows the art of making pizza. Nancy Silverton. She's a James Beard award-winning chef and co-owner of Pizzeria Mozza and Osteria Mozza in L.A. While in college, she realized she wanted to be a chef, so she went on to study at Le Cordon Bleu in London and then the École Le Nôtre in France. She worked as a pastry chef at Michael's in Santa Monica and then for Wolfgang Puck at Spago in Beverly Hills. Nancy is best known for her devotion to bread and mozzarella. She popularized artisanal bread in L.A. and gained a cult following when she opened the La Brea Bakery in 1989. If you haven't seen her episode of Chef's Table on Netflix, do yourself a favor. Watch it soon, but don't do it on an empty stomach. You'll be starving by the end of it. All right, Nancy, thank you so much for joining me today. This is uh, very exciting, obviously, because I love you so much and you're on my show and, and I think you're just an amazing person. The only upsetting thing is that we're not in the same studio at the same time. Busy schedules do not allow us to hang out together enough. That's just something we have I to I think it's something that has to be changed. So my first question for you is, after you decided to become a cook, you went off to cooking school, you did a couple of things, but one of your first jobs was at uh, Michael's. Well, you know, Jonathan Waxman hired me. Oh, he was there as well. Yes. Well, he was everywhere, that yes, guy. Yes, so when I came in, Jonathan was the chef, and he was the one that was not only hired me, but let me know that he didn't have a position on the hotline, which is what I wanted to do but that I was going to be the assistant pastry chef, a position that I really didn't want. But it got me in the door of Michael's and a lifelong relationship with Jonathan Waxman. And then you went and worked for Wolfgang Puck. How did you make the transition from dessert to bread? Wolfgang always told me the two most important parts of the meal were the bread when people sat down and the dessert when they left. And I always remembered that. In developing the menu and thinking about my own restaurant, Campanile, I was very frustrated. I didn't know where I was going to get my bread from because at that time in Los Angeles, there were not really any options. And it was then that I thought that if we could find a building that was large enough that I could have a bakery on premise. You made this place absolutely like the perfect bread place for L.A. And then you, you sold it. Yeah, so the restaurant or the bakery opened in 89. And by 2002, we had interest in somebody acquiring it. And for me at that time, it was the perfect thing to do because it had become sort of a beast, way too large for myself. I mean, I opened that bakery because I wanted to mix and shape 
and bake every loaf of bread. And right. within the first year, we had to move to a much larger facility. As proud of I was of the product, it wasn't as personal for me anymore. And I think what I love about the baking of the bread is doing it. And then I like eating it also. It's something that you can't change the process. You just have to understand yeah. it and then make little subtle changes. And it's frustrating, but ultimately so satisfying. You can't just turn up the heat and cook it higher or braise it longer or add more salt. It's a lot more challenging than that. So now you have Osteria Mozza, Pizzeria Mozza. When you open those restaurants- Wait, wait took- don't forget Kiesbacca. Exactly. But those two, it was your love of bread and mozzarella. You sort of joined them together and started making pizza. What brought you to go there? Well, you know, I think that the way I cook and the way that I sort of am inspired is usually because someone else has done it before and I'm in awe. Because I had never had a pizza before that that really, really drew me in. It was usually an excuse to hold melted cheese and tomato sauce, which is also (laughs) good too. But when I had Chris Bianco's pizza out in Phoenix, Arizona, after one bite, you know, I had that same feeling like one day, I'm going to figure out how to make a great pizza. But I just never had the opportunity. What kind of pizza have you come up with at the restaurant? I come from a bread baking background, right? So I have to make sure that that's a big part of what I make. And so I really appreciate the structure of bread and therefore the structure of pizza. So when a slice of pizza is cut, I really love to examine the side of it to see the structure and the open crumb that it has. So my pizza is crisp, hopefully, on the bottom, with a very open structure. It looks like it might be a thick pizza because you see that thick rim, which is called a corniche, but that corniche should be filled with air pockets, so it's not dense. But it's not a wet pizza and a soft dough, which you find more in Neapolitan-style restaurants. So there was a lot of controversy when I first started making pizza. You know, I would get these comments like, go back to Italy and figure out how to make pizza, or your pizza's too crunchy, you know. Again, it was my pizza, you know. It it tells my story. It's amazing to me because I've been talking about pizza now for quite a while, researching this and whatnot, and the different flowers and the companies that make it in Italy, and they use the double zero, and that's really good for Neapolitan because it cooks in 90 seconds. But if you want more structure and more crust, what are you using to give it that crunch? Well, when I started the process of figuring out how to make this dough that I envisioned, I thought that the best place to start was a Italian double zero flour. But it didn't end up working for whatever formula I was following. And by the way, the way I came up with my pizza crust is I took the bread dough that I felt was the most similar or the most compatible with turning it into a pizza dough. And so I worked from there, which is kind of interesting because where that loaf as a bread loaf may have taken me 50 tries to get there, turning that dough into a pizza dough was just so much easier. Most of the work had been done. I just knew what I had to do to change it to make it, you know, stretchable. But it was really a huge, huge help. That's amazing because I do remember last time I was in LA, I remember pulling up and sitting at the bar and having the pizza with the zucchini flowers. And I do remember sitting there and eating this pizza. And I think I had just been to Naples and I was like, 
I think you're absolutely right. It's not that thin, wet pizza like it is in Naples, and it's obviously not a New York slice. People have got to go there and try it. But I have to say, it felt like a perfect pizza to me, and I was very happy to, to realize that it was the Nancy pizza, and it was what you had envisioned to be a pizza, because you're right, it's a very personal thing. Yep, and I think that with more and more pizzerias being opened by chef types, I think there's a whole lot of new styles being thrown into the mix. So for you, you were saying that having the right bread, having the right topping, when you're creating a pizza, how involved is that for you? What's your process? It's very involved because I think that pizza or that dough Just like pasta, they're not vehicles to clean out the refrigerator. And sometimes you see it at places like that. Like, where did you come up with this combination? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I've I've seen that. I like what's on top to be very, very well curated, including not everything works as a red pie. And boy, do I ever see it because, you know, at the very beginning, we were very strict. And it's like we had to approve the combinations people were making. But that got a little difficult because, you know, you got to give the customer choices. Customers, you were letting them choose what they wanted to put on it and you were disapproving? No, no. We would say you can (laughs) subtract, but you can't. To add because oh. some of the additions that they would make were so inappropriate, not only the way I could tell that they would taste, but visually. But we got a little bit more lenient. So, for instance, if you come into me and you say you want the margarita, but can I add mushrooms? I'm going to say yes, but I'm going to close my eyes when I make it because there's something about mushrooms on red sauce that just don't work for me. It's It's a personal preference. I I get that. Yeah, it's just a personal thing. That color palette, I don't know what it is. It just doesn't work for me. And so when I'm thinking about curating a pizza, usually what happens is it is a seasonal ingredient that's going to inspire a new pizza, right? And that's always fun. But it's always the balance and the shape. And the way it eats, one of the last pizzas that I did was inspired by a small article in the New York Times Sunday style section where they were featuring different creative people on what they cook at home. So the person whose article I read was, I believe she was a clothing designer and happened to be a vegan. And so she said what she loves to do when she invites people to her home is she loves to make pizza. And instead of making a pepperoni pizza, she uses lemon slices as the pepperoni. What? And I thought, wow, not only does that sound great, but I also am always looking for ways to invite vegans to eat at my restaurant and knowing that they're getting a dish that was, it doesn't matter if you're vegan or not vegan, it's delicious. So it's not just like, I guess I'll have the side of vegetables and a green salad, you know. It is a red pizza. And on top of that are some mildly spicy slivers of Fresno chilies. And then the pepperoni slash Meyer lemon slices on top of that. And then it's finished with fried parsley and capers. And it is so delicious. Ooh, I It's just good. out of this world. And that was a great pizza. Both flavor and the look of it is so inviting that it has really become a favorite from all sorts of different palates. And I like that that's a pizza probably people order and after they eat it, you can tell them that it was a vegan pizza and yeah. they're like, oh wait, And by the way, right. it was it vegan. Was. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, amazing. Right. People making pizza at home, do you have any tips? Well, first of all, absolutely a baking stone is imperative to bake the pizza on. I'm finding that a stainless steel stone, which is not a stone, a stainless steel <laughs> plaque right. actually conducts heat even better than the stone in a home oven. 
I think that one should not get caught up in making a round pizza because sometimes that's challenging for people. And also not be too ambitious with the ingredients nor have a heavy hand on what's on top because it's going to be a little bit difficult then to transfer that pizza from the peel onto the stone. I find that with people sometimes it gets to, there's just too much going on to right. it. This has been fantastic. I'm so excited that we got to do this. Me too. I get to hear your voice. I don't get to see you unfortunately, but we're going to do that soon for lunch. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you. What a pleasure. Well, that's it for pizza, guys. I got to go get a slice. But first, I want to thank my guests Scott Weiner and Nancy Silverton. See you soon. Food 360 is a production of iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Mark Murphy. A very special thanks to Emily Carpin, my director of communications, and producers Nikki Etor and Christina Everett. Mixing and music by Anna Stumpf, and recording help from Julian Weller and Jacopo Benzo. Thank you to Bethann Macaluso and Kara Weissenstein for handling research. Food 360 is executive produced by Mengesh Hetikador. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.